0: you guys go ahead and as you're being seated, grab your Bibles there if you have them. And you're going to Judges chapter 7. Or if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along in one, grab one of the ones on the chairs there in front of you or underneath you. You're going to Judges chapter 7, which you can find on page 275. 275 of one of those Bibles there. So we're continuing in the series that we've been in, Cycles, which is a walk through the book of Judges. And we're taking episodes of the book of Judges. And uh, as we, we go through that, uh, we're, we're seeing um, that there's a cycle that takes place and I want to show you that That the, as you kind of understand this cycle in the book of Judges you kind of start to see how things are happening and the cycle is this rebellion takes place God's people rebel against him they don't live the way they should and so then God has to act in his justice to, to punish their, their uh, rebellion and so usually the way that looks is God raises up someone a deliverer for him and um I'm sorry, uh, an enemy of Israel that comes and oppresses God's people. And then when that oppression gets too heavy, too great, God's people cry out. And they usually are crying out uh, because the oppression is too great. They they can't bear the consequences anymore. And then God sends a deliverer. He raises up a judge, someone he uses to then overthrow the people that are oppressing Israel. And then it it leads them into uh, a revival or a period of rest And so this morning, we're going to pick up with a story that we started uh, last week in Judges 6, the story of Gideon. And last week, we we saw Gideon, who was uh, just a a weak young man from a a small tribe, and God reveals himself to to Gideon and says, Hey, you mighty warrior, I'm going to use you to deliver my people. And Gideon says, No, 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 I'm I'm just the weakest one. And and God continues to work with Gideon and assure him of his faithfulness, and it ends with Gideon uh, putting out his fleece and and saying, God, well, if 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 you're... Going to be faithful to do what you said you're going to do? Would you then, you know, make the fleece dry and the ground wet? And then he does it again. and says, "Make the fleece wet and the ground dry." Right. And so that's kind of where we wrapped up this week. And this week we're looking at um, the weakest link as we continue the study of Gideon. And I don't know about you, but I think if you're being honest, you you probably recognize, like I do, that in our society, in our daily lives, in our churches, we don't really like to talk about weaknesses. We don't really celebrate weaknesses. We don't. Um, really acknowledge weaknesses. I mean, all, everything that we're told uh, in society is that you don't let them see you cry, right? You, you don't let them see your weakness. If you are weak in an area, you need to either cover that up or you need to find a way to fix that, right? We're, we're not a, a type of people who really celebrates in being weak. You know, maybe that's a, a particular struggle we have where, you know, this, this particular sin, it tempts me all the time. That's a weakness I have. But can I say anything about it in church? Most of the time we don't feel like we can say anything about it in church. Why? Because I've got to cover up my weakness. Or I've got this physical limitation or this physical illness that prevents me from being able to do things and and be able to do what I want to do or do what maybe I think God has called me to do. And and so we try to fix those physical limitations or those physical illnesses. We, We think we can't do anything until then. But what would you say if I told you that the message of the Bible and the message of the God of the Bible is not fix your weaknesses so that I can work through you, But that it is in your weaknesses, that's how my strength is shown. It's it's this, it's God shows his strength through our weaknesses. Which is completely opposite of the way you and I operate. But we're going to see this morning as we go through Gideon's life, that it's through our weaknesses that God shows his strengths. And so we're going to pick up with with Gideon here in chapter uh, 7. And uh, here's where we start. Our weakness... Creates room for God's win. It's our weakness that creates room for God's win, for God to be victorious, for God to show his strength. So Judges chapter seven, we pick up with Gideon. Now he's just gotten the fleece last week. We saw that. And now Jerub Baal, that is Gideon. So Gideon had gotten a different name for tearing down the Baal altar in the previous chapter. And his men, they get up the next morning, they're ready to go to battle. So the way it ended in chapter 6 was Gideon called all these men to him. And thousands of them came, right? Ultimately, we see it was 32,000 of them that came. And so they're ready for battle. They're kind of camped out on a hill. They can see the enemy down below them. And then verse 2, God steps in and says this. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to hand Midian over to you. Israel might brag, our own strength has delivered. So, so, so Gideon's ready, he's camped out, and he gets up the next morning, and God says, wait, 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 you've got too many people. If you go into battle with that many people, Israel might be tempted to brag that they're the ones who defeated Gideon. You see, because God knows us so well. He knows that, you know, Gideon has all of these men. And even though God has been telling Gideon, I'm going to be the one to deliver you. I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to make you a mighty warrior. And, and, and God is the one who allowed all of these people to, to respond to Gideon's call. God knows that on the other side of victory, the people might be tempted to say, yeah, we kind of did that on our own. We had a great battle strategy.
1: Or, you know, we had enough men and while we didn't
0: outnumber the others, we still had a good number. And God says, no, no, I don't want to risk this. I don't want to risk them bragging that they did it themselves. So what does he do? He, he starts to implement this plan where he whittles down the men. So he says in verse 3 to Gideon, Announce to the men, whoever is shaking with fear may turn around and leave Mount Gilead. So everybody who's here, if you're afraid to go into battle, if you're, if you're fearful of what lies ahead, go ahead and go back home to your family. And 22,000 men went home, leaving him. Put yourself in Gideon's shoes for more. You've just just called for all these people to come join you so that you can go to war against the Mananites. You're going to overthrow your enemies. And now God says, you've got too many. You've got too many. If you go to war with that many people, they're they're going to think they won the victory instead of me. So he starts to whittle down. Now, Gideon, go and tell your people if they're scared, go. Now, you might expect maybe a few hundred. Maybe a few hundred would take that. But you know how men are. When we get around other men... You know, are you scared? <laughs> nah, I'm not scared. Are you scared? Nah, I'm not scared. It doesn't matter if we are scared. We are definitely not going to admit that we're scared around a bunch of other men. And so you've got all these men ready for battle. You might think a few of them are gutsy enough to say, I'm going home with my wife and kids. 22,000 of them. Can you imagine standing there as Gideon and you're watching them all just turn around and walk away? And this, this formation, this crowd that you have. An entire chunk disappears. 10,000 you're left with. Okay, so I'm getting it now and I'm going, okay, <laughs> that was not what I expected. God, I didn't expect you to do that. I'm not sure what you're planning now, God, because it doesn't make a lot of sense that you just dismissed 22,000 of the people. You know, it's not like we already outnumbered them to begin with, but now I'm starting to devise, you know, another battle strategy. Okay, I was thinking I had this many, but here's what I can do with this many, right? Well, we go on. Verse 4, The Lord spoke the game again. There are still too many men. What? Wait, there's only 10,000 now. God, didn't you just see 22,000 walk away? Surely that's, that's enough for you to be able to work through, and people know you worked. Bring them down to the water, and I will fend the ranks. So, so, so God gives these instructions. I want you to bring them down to get some to drink, and getting these instructions, getting them to watch how they drink the water, because based on the way the men drink the water... Is going to be how Gideon separates. So there's going to be some people, they're going to go to the water, and they're going to get way down, and they're just going to lap it straight up, right? And then there's going to be other people, they're going to go, and they're going to to cup their hand, and they're going to sip it that way. He says, I want you to separate those, those who lap and those who cup their hand. So he does that. Verse 5, it brings them down. He separates them, go on in verse 6, 300 men lapped. So 300 men get all the way down and just lap in the water like a dog from the pond. The rest of the men kneeled and drank the water. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will deliver the whole army and I will hand Midian over to you. With 300 people. He was at 32,000 and then it went down to 10,000 and then he's watching it go down to three. God says, there you go. Now, that's that's how many I'm going to use. That's how many I'm going to use to throw your enemies into your hands. And the rest of the men should go home. Now, God doesn't often follow our logic. God doesn't often work in the way that you and I expect. And we've kind of been seeing that as we go through the book of Judges. God does not operate in the way that you and I expect. And He's not obligated to. He, He operates how He wants to operate. And a lot of times, that goes against the way you and I think he should operate. You and I look at the story, and Gideon looks at the story, and he's going, Hey, I I, I think the more men you have, the better, right? I mean, the the people he's going up against has hundreds of thousands. And he only had 32,000 to start. But then he's down to 300. God, it doesn't make sense. And maybe some of you, you're looking at your life, and maybe there's areas where you're saying, God, I need victory in this. I need, I need you to see me through this. I need to get to the other side. And, and you're not there yet. And maybe you're not seeing him act. And the first thing I want to ask is, maybe, maybe, is it possible that God might be saying to you, you have too many men. You have, you have too much surrounding you that you've kind of built up as your crutch, that if I do bring you victory, that if I do bring you this, you're not in a spot where you're going to acknowledge that it was me. Because you're not in a spot where you're going to acknowledge your weakness, your limitations. You see, it's it's our weakness that creates room for God's win. But what if I'm not willing to admit my weakness? What if I'm not willing to acknowledge it? What if I continue to press on and and I'm trying to operate as if I have no weaknesses? And then God does something, I'm going to say, well, I did that. And maybe that's some of you. Maybe that's what God's saying to you. You've got too many men. Because if, if I bring you through this, you might be tempted to say you got you through this. And God wants us to be in a spot where we're able to acknowledge there's no other answer Okay, him. You see, because God's, God's not as concerned about our victory as he is about our trust. You see, if God were to bring us through and give us victory in something, but we then brag on the other side that we did it, we're further off than we were before. That would be disastrous. Because we've not learned to trust God. Instead, we've inserted our own pride. And so maybe God's saying to you, you've got too many men. And maybe you're looking at your situation and you're saying, God, I need you to act here. I need you to bring me through this. I need you to show up here. And you're expecting it to happen a certain way. But time and time again, we're seeing God doesn't always act the way we expect him to. A lot of times, he doesn't act the way we expect him to. And so maybe you're looking for him to act over here. And all the while, God's saying, no, no, see, it's going to happen over here. And it's going to happen in this way. Are you willing to accept that? Are you willing to trust that? See, because Gideon now has 300 men, and he's going up against hundreds of thousands. Are you willing to go into that and trust the Lord? So God continues to go on and explain to Gideon uh, that this is how I'm going to do it, 300 men. And, And so that night, verse 9, the Lord says to Gideon, now get up. Get up and attack the camp, for I am handing it over to you. But here, God is so good. He's so gracious. See, back in chapter 6, Gideon asked God for some assurance. He asked him twice. He said, hey, the first time, would you, to the messenger of the Lord, the angel of the Lord in chapter 6, would you just stay here for a minute? I'm going to go get an offering prepared. And that way, I can know if this is you or not. I want to make an offering to you. And then at the end of the chapter with the fleece, he asked, hey, can, can you assure me that you're going to do what you said? But here, Gideon hasn't asked. Gideon has not asked for God's assurance, but God takes the initiative and says, hey, but if you are afraid, verse 10, if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and listen to what they are saying. Then you will be brave and attack the camp. So he does that. So here's what happens though. So in and his servant, they go down out to the middle of the night, right? He goes to the edge of the camp, and he and his servant are just sitting there and listening. There's two guards at the gate there or the edge of the camp, and they're listening to him talk. One guard starting to explain to the other guard how he didn't sleep well. You know, he had this dream, and he starts to explain this dream, and it it has to do with this piece of bread that kind of overtakes the camp. And the other guy that's listening to the, to the dream starts to explain, oh, surely that, here's what this dream means. Surely that dream, that piece of bread you're talking about, that's Gideon. That's the guy who, who we're camping out against, and he's coming and he's going to, to overthrow us. Surely Gideon's God has given him victory. And so then the whole camp of guards, it starts to spread fear. So you're Gideon. You're on the edge of that camp. You're cloaked in darkness. You're listening to this. And God said, I'm giving them over to your hand. Go. But if you're afraid, go check this out. He's listening. And he hears, confirmed, what God has said he was going to do as he listens to his dreams. So what does he do? He, he goes back up to the camp. Verse uh, 15 there. When Gideon heard the report of the dream and its interpretation, he praised God. Because what else do you do when God confirms for you that he is indeed going to do what he says he's going to do? And he's going to do it through your weakness. What else do you do? You can't boast. You can't brag. See, God, I knew I could come come through for you. See, I knew I was the guy. I was your man. Because you've got 300 people. You're going up against 100,000. You you don't stand to, to win. But when God says, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to act on your behalf. I'm going to use your weakness. And I'm going to show my strength. And when God confirms that to you, well, you do but praise God. So he goes back and he gets everybody ready for battle. All right, so here's how the rest of that chapter kind of unfolds. So he gets everybody ready for battle, all 300 of his men. And he kind of gives them this battle strategy. He says, I'm going to break you up into to three different companies of 100 people each, right? So we've got three groups of 100. And we're going to go and we're going to surround the camp in these areas. Now you're going to have a horn, which would be like a ram's horn, and you're going to have a torch in this hand. But that torch is going to be covered by a jar, so the light doesn't show. Okay? And so we're all going to go and we're going to surround ourselves. And he says, and on my mark. When I say, I want everyone, all 300 of you who surround in the camp, I want you to yell as loud as you can yell, and I want you to blow your horn, and then I want you to smash your jar that's covering your porch. Because when they smash the jar, all 300 of them, all of a sudden, in the midst of darkness, there's going to be all of a sudden all this light, and it's going to be accompanied by all this noise. Now, that does not sound like a good battle plan. Anymore,
1: right? I mean, that does
0: not sound like you would be laughed off Uh, out of leadership, if you stood in front of of a group of soldiers and said, here's what we're going to do. We're not even going to fight. We're going to go we're going to scare these guys, right? But here's what you need to know. So this is the middle of the night, and it's at the time where the the changing of the guard is taking place. So you've got some people posted at the gates and at different spots, and they're coming off shift, and you're bringing other people on shift. So in the middle of darkness, in the midst of this camp, you're going to have people... Now moving and walking where in the middle of the night they typically would not be, okay. And so when Gideon then on his mark he does that they all blow their horns, they smash their jars, and they yell, and this light is all of a sudden flooding around them. It appears that they're much bigger than they are, but remember, this is the point where the guards are changing, and so people are walking, and it's darkness, and so the whole camp goes into a frenzy. They have no clue what's going on. All of a sudden, you're under attack. You think you're you're being attacked by people, and you see someone moving toward you with a weapon. You think the enemy's already invaded your camp, so what are you going to do? You're going to fight back, and so what happens is Gideon's army is watching this all unfold below them, and the, the, the Midianites are fighting themselves because they didn't know that that Gideon's men were not in the camp. And it's just so dark and there's such chaos. And that's how God brought about the victory. Gideon's men, at this point, have not even had to wield a sword. They just stayed where they are, smashed a pot, held a light, blew a horn, and yelled. And then God has them take care of it down there. Only God. Only God can do something like that. And can you imagine being up there watching this going, I can't believe this is happening. Like even on your best day if you're going to war, you you might hope for something like that, but you would never plan on something like that. But that was God's plan. Our weakness creates room for God's win. You see, Gideon had to step back and trust God to do what God said he was going to do. What's your weakness? What is it that's limiting you? What is it that, you're, that you have in your life where you're saying, man, this is the area where I'm tempted all the time. That's a weakness. And, and you're, you're not even willing to acknowledge it. Or I've got this physical limitation. I can't do what I want to do. Or I don't think God can use me because of this. It's your weakness. Or like me, you know, if you're like me, it's been allergies really bad this week. And I don't know how allergies hit you, but the way allergies tend to hit me is I get into a fog up here. And I've been in this fog. All week long, we're like you know, things are not connecting. There there's not, might not even be anything firing sometimes, right? But if they are firing, they're not connecting. And and when that happens on a Sunday morning, that's a really scary thing. Right? Because guess what I've got to do on a Sunday morning? I've got to get up in front of you and talk and make sense, right? But if I'm in a fog and things aren't connecting, that's a scary spot to be. That's a physical limitation that I wish I didn't have. But God uses our weakness and it creates room for him to bring about his win. So maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I'm just a single mom or I'm just a single dad or I'm, I'm just a student. You know, I'm just a kid. College student, high school student, middle school student, I can't make the debt. I don't have my degree yet. I can't do anything until I have my degree. We're just a small church out in the middle of a wheat field. We don't have the right real estate. We don't have a prime spa. We don't have all the resources of, a, of all these bigger churches. Those are all weaknesses. They're all limitations. But God uses our weaknesses to bring about his strength. So single mom, single dad, I know it's hard. I know you're, you're having to take care of yourself. You're having to work your job and provide for your kids and make sure they get to school and make sure they're dressed. And then on top of that, you feel the pressure that you've got to make up for what your, uh, th- their dad's not there for or their mom's not there for. And you're thinking, how am I supposed to do this? And God says to you, I can work through your weakness. I can work. I'm just a student, I can't make a dent, you know, because I'm so young. That's exactly why God would want to use you. Because nobody would expect you in your age to be able to make a dent and accomplish things that, that God might want to do through you. Because they'll look at you and they say, there's no way. But God looks at you and he says, mighty warrior, I want to use you. Only 300 men, I want to use you. I don't have my degree yet. God doesn't need a degree to use you. I know people in this church who are more successful and they're fearful than other people and they've never had a degree. God just opened doors and they walk walked through them. Maybe some of them got there the hard way, maybe others, uh, they, they had a different experience, but God doesn't need a degree to put you where he wants to put you. He'll equip you to be where you need to be. We don't celebrate our weaknesses, but the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians, he wrote this letter. We don't celebrate our weaknesses. We don't really like to acknowledge them, but, but Paul... He's, he's this guy who persecuted the church, right? He was the biggest persecutor of the church. And then one day, uh, the risen Jesus reveals himself to to Paul and says, Paul, stop persecuting me, and it's now time to serve me. Right? And that's paraphrasing. right? But he says, uh, it's time for you to serve me. And so and then Paul goes, and Paul writes most of our New Testament letters. And Paul goes and plants a lot of the churches that then started the spread of Christianity. And look what Paul says. See, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 was telling us that, uh, there was a moment where God gave him some special visions, some special knowledge. And no other person had received this. But in order to keep Paul humble, God had given Paul this thorn in the flesh. And, and this thorn in the flesh was a weakness of some kind. It was a limiting thing for Paul. And it was given by God to keep him humble. And here's what Paul says about that. Paul had prayed several times, I want him to take it away. But God's response in verse 9, he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power Is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Now, you and I, we don't boast in our weaknesses, but Paul is saying, Hey, God told me when He did not deliver me from these weaknesses that He did not uh, take these weaknesses out of my life. He says, No, you need to depend upon my grace. My grace is enough for you because in your weakness, God says, My power is made perfect. And so Paul says, so therefore, that's why I can boast in my weakness. I can, I can celebrate my weaknesses. Why? Because that's an opportunity, that's an area for God to show His power. And so we go on in verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then, Paul says, I am content with weaknesses. Now, you and I, we are not content with weaknesses. I'm not. I don't want my weaknesses to show. I don't, I don't want my weaknesses to limit me. I want to be a machine. I want to be able to do whatever I want to do at whatever age I want to do it. But Paul says, I am content with my weaknesses. He says, I'm content with insults. I'm not. If you insult me, I want to get back at you. I'm not content with that. I'm content, he says, with hardships and persecutions and calamities. You and I, we go through that and we say, God, where are you? You you stopped loving me. What did I do to to mess things up? But Paul says, no, I look at those things and I say, I'm content with them. Because they are opportunities for God to show His power. For when I am weak, then I am strong. But you can't take that last phrase, when I am weak, then I am strong, and separate it from what Paul's already said. It's because my power, God says, is perfect in weakness. It's because of what God does through Christ in the midst of our weaknesses, that Paul is able to say, that's why I can celebrate and I can be content with weaknesses because it creates room for God's win. But, be careful that your weakness doesn't become something that we flip and now brag about being the strength. God, you didn't didn't get me through this. I'm a single mom, I'm a single dad. I did this on my own. I don't need a man. I don't need a woman. I'm strong. You know, uh, I don't need a degree. I read all these books. You know, I, 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 I'm just a student, you know, but, but God, I've been training. You know, we start to find ways to justify why we did it. Be careful that we don't do that because our pride puts us in God's place. And that's not a good thing. Our pride puts us in God's place. So we go on to chapter 8 now. We see that Gideon, Gideon was a leader. He was a good leader. But like um, when you go to your fridge and you, you, you pour some milk into your bowl of cereal at 9 o'clock at night. That you have had your mind set on all day. And as you're pouring that milk, you start to see this film. Maybe if been sitting long enough, you see some curdled stuff. Gideon is a leader who's gone bad. And so chapter 8, we start to see that Gideon comes out of the other side of his victory and he starts to operate in pride instead of acknowledging his weakness. And so look with me at chapter 8, verse 1. Here's what happens when we start to operate in pride. The Ephraimites, this is a large tribe in the nation of Israel. The Ephraimites said to Gideon, why have you done such a thing to us? You did not summon us when you went to fight the Midianites. They argued vehemently with him. He said to them, now what have I accomplished compared to you? Even Ephraim's leftover grapes are better quality than Abiezer's harvest. It was to you that God handed over the Midianite generals, Oreb, and Zeb. What did I accomplish to rival that? And when he said this, they calmed down. So this tribe they start to seek their personal glory. Because when we operate in pride, we don't seek God's glory. We seek our glory. And so this tribe comes along and and Gideon has had this victory and sent this army on the run. And they say, hey, why didn't you invite us along? We wanted to be a part of this. We wanted to, to share in the glory here. And so they're they're seeking out their personal glory. And Gideon, Gideon gives a soft answer and it turns away wrath. You you might have heard that. A gentle answer, soft answer, turns away wrath. That's what Gideon does. He says, Look, who am I? Who am I compared to you? Look, I got these guys on the run, but you captured their generals. What is that compared to what I've done? And then he says, "Hey, your tribe is so much bigger than ours. Your tribe has so much more resources. Even the worst year that you have a harvest, the worst harvest you have in a year, that's better than our best. Your worst grapes are better than our best grapes." And so what Gideon does is, speaking to people who are operating in pride, is he strokes their pride, right? And what happens when you're operating in pride and someone strokes your pride? You back off because you've got what you wanted. I just wanted to be acknowledged for I just wanted some glory. I just wanted some attention. And so when we operate in pride, what starts to happen is we seek our personal glory. But as we go on, so, so Gideon and his 300 men, they're continuing to chase these, these armies that's on the run. They're chasing after the kings now. The generals have been caught. They're chasing after the kings. And he comes to a group of people in two different towns, and his men are hungry, and his men are tired. And he asks them for some provision, give us something to eat. And so here's what we see in verse 6 of chapter 8. The first town, the town of Succoth, the officials of Succoth said, You have not yet overpowered Ziba and Zalmunna, so why should we give bread to your army? So here's what they're saying. Um, We're not going to help you until you actually capture them, because if you don't capture them and we've helped you, they're going to come back and get us for siding with you. Okay. So Gideon says in verse 7, Since you will not help, after the Lord hands Ziba and Zalmunna, these are the kings, over to me, I will thresh your skin with desert thorns and briars. So then Gideon moves on to the next town, Penuel. And he says the same, he asks the same thing, and they give the same response. And so the men of Penuel responded the same way. Verse 9, he also threatened the men of Penuel, warning, When I return victoriously, I will tear down this tower. When we start to operate in pride, we seek personal glory, but we also start to take rejection personally. Every rejection becomes a personal attack. And, and, and the question we should be asking is, how many times am I taking people's rejection as personal attacks? Do you want to buy these cookies? No. How could you do that to me? I just don't want your cookies. Right? Or, or you, you know, someone doesn't like some idea you propose, but you take it so personally because you've attached yourself to that idea. Your pride is behind that idea. And they say, no, I don't think that'll work. What, you don't think I'm qualified? Did I say that? Okay, I better stop. Now. I'm getting riled up. Um, so, he starts to operate in personal. He takes everything personal, and then he also seeks vengeance, a role that God says is his. Vengeance is mine. But when you are prideful and you're operating in your pride and everything is a personal attack, you're going to get the people who attack you. And so he starts to take vengeance and he's issuing threats. Fine, when I get what, I, what, I, what I'm after, you're going to get what you deserve. I'm coming back for you. And so he makes those threats. So we see he goes on, if you keep reading, and he captures those kings and he brings those kings back to the town of Succoth and the town of Penuel and he sees the leaders, verse 16 of the city. And he, along with some desert thorns and bars, and then he threshed the men of Succoth with them. And then he also, verse 17, tore down the tower of Penuel and executed the city's men. Now, these are people that belong to the nation of Israel. Gideon has now started to fight against his own people. Why? God took three hundred men and Gideon's weakness and, and he used him to bring about this great victory, but then on the other side. Gideon still started to operate in pride. He's a leader, a good leader, who went bad. And he starts to operate in pride, and so we seek personal glory, and every rejection becomes personal, and we start to seek vengeance. And that's what he did here. He sought vengeance. But then we go on, and and probably the worst thing that Gideon does, he developed a God complex. He starts to think things are owed to him. And so... The people, they're saying to Gideon, Hey, we want you to be our king. We want you to rule over us. But Gideon gives a really great response here in verse uh, 23 there. Gideon says to them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That's a really good answer. I'm not going to be your king. You need to submit yourself to the Lord. Let the, the Lord continue to be our king. That's how it was supposed to be. But, verse 24, Gideon continued. However, he says, I would like to make one request. I don't, want you to, I don't want to be your king, but can I just make one small request? Each of you give me an earring from the plunder you have taken. Now the Midianites had earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And he says in verse 25, they said, we are happy to give you earrings. So they spread out a garment and each one of them threw an earring from his plunder onto it. And we're going to jump to verse 27. What, is, what does Gideon do then with all this, this plunder, this gold, this silver? Verse 27. Gideon used all of this to make an ephod. Now an ephod was, was a vest. Worn by the priest, only the priest of Israel was supposed to wear this vest. It had some jewels on it, and it, and it probably had on it what's called the urim and the Thurman. In the New Testament, on um, the Old Testament, it's what they would sometimes throw out. They would call it casting lots or whatever, and use that to help discern the will of the Lord. So that was on there sometimes too. And it was only supposed to be worn by a priest who was then going to go and intercede on behalf of the people for God. And Gideon makes an ephod, and Gideon is not a priest, but Gideon has developed a god complex. And he takes his ephod, and look what happens to it. All the Israelites prostituted themselves to it by worshiping it there. It became a snare to Gideon and his family. And then we find in verse 28, the land had rest for 40 years during Gideon's time. I told you in Judges, the spiral was just going down. This is the first time we've read in the book of Judges that God's people backslide while the judge is still alive. You see, normally what would happen is while the judge is still alive, they enjoy rest and peace. But we've never read anything about them uh, backsliding while the judge is alive. Usually it's after the judge died, then the people again did evil inside the Lord. But here, here, God's people are backsliding while God's deliverer is still alive. And Gideon has operated in pride and put himself in God's place. And this ephod becomes a idol. He distracts God's people from God and puts it on himself. And that's what pride does. Pride prevents us from being able to see God's power work through our weaknesses. Because if I'm operating in pride, I have no weaknesses. Or if I'm operating in pride, you won't see my weaknesses. I won't let you. I will not admit they're there and I will cover them up. And when we do that, it prevents God from being able to show his power through us. Have you ever thought about that? That the the areas that you and I work so hard to cover up. Whereas as a a church, maybe, you know, we don't feel like we can be honest about things among our our friends and family at church because, man, I I don't want them to think less of me. But what if we're quenching the spirit? What if we're preventing God from being able to show His power? Because all the while, God's saying, once you get to the point where you acknowledge that you're weak, then I can show how I'm strong. Once you get to the point that you acknowledge that this is a problem for you, then I can work through it. Once you get to the point where you say, I lack or I'm not able, then I am able. But if you don't get to that point, you'll never know that God is the one doing it. And you'll brag all the while Because pride puts us in God's place. And God wants to show His strength through our weakness. Gideon was a disappointing leader. He started out good. But he went back. And, and he distracted God's people from God. But remember, in we, as we go through the book of Judges, the, the book of Judges points us to God's ultimate deliverer. And, and God's ultimate deliverer was a man who took on weakness. So Jesus, who existed as God, existed with God, but then stepped down from that position. He didn't, he didn't see it as something he had to hold on to, is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He didn't see his his position as something he had to maintain. Instead, he was willing to step down from it, humble himself, and take on weakness. He willingly limited himself to a fleshly body like you and me. He took on weakness so that through that God could show his strength. And then he continued on, and after living the life that you and I should have lived but couldn't, he did that in in our place, and then he succumbed to another weakness. He willingly allowed himself to die. And isn't death an ultimate show of weakness? I mean, I can't defeat the thing that kills me. I'm weak. And he succumbed to that weakness so that through that, God could show his strength. And three days later, God did when he raised Jesus from the dead, overcoming death, overcoming victory. It was through the weakness that God was able to show his strength. And it's through his deliverer, Jesus, the one who brings about permanent deliverance, lasting deliverance, that God says, now I want to bring that to you. I want to give life to you. The areas where you're weak, the areas where you, you lack, I want to work through those areas. But we've got to first start with acknowledging our weakness. For every one of us, that weakness is sin. You and I are limited. We can't live the way we're supposed to live, that God wants us to live because of sin. We can't live in a way that points others to God because of sin. That is our weakness. Sin is limiting. But God says, now, once you acknowledge that, let me show you how my strength has been put on display. And he points us to his deliverer, the one that he raised up, the one who took our place. And so maybe this morning, some of you, maybe you need to acknowledge your weakness, and that is that you are not able to deliver yourself. On your best day, you can't deliver yourself. On your best day, you can't bring about what God does through His Savior. Instead, you need to acknowledge your weakness, humble yourself, and instead trust in Christ. You need to repent, which means stop trusting in whatever you're trusting in, and go the opposite direction and put it all in Christ and maybe others of you this morning, yeah, you've done that. but hey, Christians are a bunch of prideful people. We, we can be some of the most prideful people. And the place our pride swells the most is oftentimes when we are in a building with a bunch of other Christians. Are you willing to be weak and acknowledge you weak? I'm not saying give in to temptation. I'm saying admit. Or you're weak. I don't, I don't measure up here. I struggle with this, you know. I, I can't do what God wants me to do because I've got this that's limit to me. Are you willing to do that? Because it's then where God's able to step in and show His strength. And what He does for us when we trust in Christ is He gives us His Spirit. And His Spirit that empowers and enables us to do what we can't do. To live the way we, we need to live but we, we couldn't do without Him. See, God gives us His strength. But we first gotta be able to acknowledge that I'm weak. But God is strong. And God shows us strength through our weaknesses. The sooner we get that, the more we're gonna see God at work in our lives, and in our church, and in our community, and in Christians all across the world. So, Father, we're so grateful for the deliverer that you've raised up, Jesus. And this morning, some need to maybe trust in him. Maybe they've, they've heard it before. Maybe it didn't make sense. But this morning, some of it's starting to make sense. And, and they, they know they're weak. They know that they don't, they don't uh, measure up. They're not able to deliver themselves. And so this morning, God, would you bring them to a point where they can say, I trust in Christ. I trust in the deliverer that God raised up. I trust in Jesus. For, the, for his death and his resurrection, for the forgiveness of my sins. And God, when they do that, you bring them new life. You, you take them out of darkness and bring them into life. You infuse in them a new power that wasn't there before. A strength. Not so that we can brag, but that we can then boast in you, trust in you. Look how good my God is. Look how strong my God is. Look how, how merciful and gracious. Can you believe he would use me to do something like this? Can you believe he would use me and put me in this position? God, let us be a people that do that. Because we acknowledge our frailty, that we are poor in spirit. Like Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Help us not to become rich in spirit. And God, when we see you work, let us point others to you. And we pray that in the name of Christ, our deliverer. Amen. Amen. All right, hey. I'm so glad that you were here today, and, I, and I've been saying this last couple of weeks, I hope you got what you needed from God this morning. Maybe not what you expected, because God, God doesn't always work the way you expect, but I hope He gave you what you needed. Hey, if you're visiting this morning for the first time and you have a few minutes, I'd love to say hello to you afterwards, maybe answer any questions you might have. If so, exit these doors, hang a right, I'll meet you down by the couches, and if you haven't already, we've got a free gift we'd like to give to you. So, all right? If you're able, will you please stand, and we will dismiss your God shows His strength in your weakness. So go out of here and live your life in His strength and let others see that. And do that in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll see you guys next week.